uh, to James chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 18. Um, there are pew Bibles that you can turn to. James chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Uh, we're continuing our break from Mark's gospel. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be getting back to Mark uh, in July. Uh, but tonight we're going to be in James chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. And we'll be considering the goodness of God. Um, now, our text this evening is about trials and hardship and how we're supposed to think about God and our situations in the midst of it all. And our great takeaway is meant to be this. I'm going to tell you right off the beginning, right? Here's the takeaway. I'm letting the cat out of the bag. God is good. All that God gives and does is good. God is good to his people and he does not change in his goodness. That's what we're taking away this evening. And this is a good thing for us to think through together uh, tonight. And I say that because I know that many of us are currently in the middle of some kind of trial, trouble, or sorrow. I, I recognize that I could say that just about every week whenever I get up here. right? But nevertheless, it's true. I know that some of you are currently dealing with difficult family issues. right? Maybe you're not getting along with your parents. And I'm not just talking about younger people talking about older people as well in our congregation who are not getting along with their parents. Maybe you're not getting along with your children. Maybe you're not getting along with your spouse. Still yet, maybe, again, again, and, and we have different levels of hardships and trials that, that, that we're going through, some greater and some less, right? I know that some people are staring down the barrel of financial issues that need figuring out. Um, still others are dealing with maybe the greatest hardship and sorrow, mourning over loss and death. Maybe that death is recent. Maybe that death happened a year or more ago. But nevertheless, the pain is still real and the pain is still fresh and you're still mourning. My point is that many of us are going through various kinds of trials right now. And if you're not, just wait. <laughs> right? If you're not suffering right now, wait. It'll be your turn eventually. Right? That's how life works. Trials come and trials go. Some linger for a while and some never seem to go away. That's the reality of living in a fallen world until Jesus Christ comes. But since we're all destined to go through various kinds of trials, and since we're all going to endure suffering of some kind in this life, we all need to know how we're supposed to think through it. Right? Because our thinking is going to lead to how we act through it. And that's what our text is going to teach us this evening how to think about God through difficult trials. And it's gonna, this text is going to remind us of the unchanging goodness of God toward us in all that he gives. All right, so that's where we're going this evening. Now, with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. James chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift... And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our good and unchanging God, we come before you this evening and ask that you would once again shower us with your goodness and kindness. Please be gracious to us and teach us from your word. By your spirit, till up the soil in our hearts so we might meekly receive the implanted word. 
Grant us minds to understand the truth and grant us hearts to believe and rejoice in it. Please help us. Show us your goodness this evening. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so the context here, right? James is writing this letter to suffering Christians. Right, that's his primary audience. These are Jewish Christians who have been scattered throughout the Roman Empire and the diaspora. Right, they're suffering many things. And we see that, not just historically, but in the first few verses. In verses 2 through 4, we read very famous verses. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. So he says rejoice in your trials. Why? Because there were many people suffering that he was writing to. This letter is what we call occasional. Uh, that is, like all New Testament letters, it's written in response to something going on in the Christian community, right? Something that needs addressed and or corrected. And one of the major themes of James is how to endure suffering well. Right? How to honor God as you suffer and go through trials and temptations. That's one of the major themes of this book. Um, so that tells us that those to whom James wrote must have been suffering greatly. Again, we see that implied in, from many different verses throughout this letter. Some were poor, uh, and I mean like very poor. Not like I can't get the new iPhone poor, but like actually poor, where they didn't know if they were going to eat or not kind of poor. Some were dragged into court by unbelievers, mistreated, abused, many other things, mainly because of their faith in Christ. They'd been disowned by their Jewish families who hadn't become Christian, and the Romans hated them as well. Right? Trouble on all sides for these Jewish Christians. So they were in pain, suffice it to say, and they were enduring many different kinds of trials. And as they go through these hard times, these Christians were tempted to sin. Right? And really, this happens in every trial, doesn't it? You're tempted to sin in every trial. When you meet with a hard situation, you always have two options. You can hit the situation head on and do things God's way, trusting in him, and then you can grow and mature in faith and holiness, or we can do things our way and sin against God. You can do things God's way, or you can do things your way. You can grow in faithfulness and holiness, or you can sin. Those are your options in every trial. And apparently these Christians were choosing sin a good bit of the time. And they had begun to say that they wouldn't be sinning if it weren't for the trial that they're in. Therefore, it must be God's fault that they're sinning. Right? God's trying to get me to sin, they're saying. It's his fault that I'm committing these sins. And you see that in verses 12, 12 through 15. I'm not going to read them, but you can look for yourself. They're accusing God of doing evil and tempting them to sin, tempting them toward evil. And James says very plainly in verses 12 through 15, no, that's not how this works. Sure, God has allowed the trial to come upon you, but when you sin, it's always your fault because you wanted to sin. That's why you sinned you're evil and you wanted to right so though God may allow trials to come upon you whenever you choose to sin it's always your fault period right so James has addressed that but what I want you to see is that these Christians were very obviously questioning the plan and goodness of God for them as I just said I think that is pretty explicitly clear in verses 12 through 15 they're accusing God of evil they're accusing God of tempting them to sin but I think it's also implied in verse 17 that we just read 
Right, and here's why. James begins to speak in verse 17 about God's goodness and good gifts and unchanging character. And I think that that implies that the suffering Christians were questioning those very truths. Or James wouldn't need to mention them. James wouldn't need to question them. But they must have been questioning God's goodness, so James needs to address it. Bottom line, see this. In their suffering, these believers were beginning to think God is not good. Or God is not as good as I once thought he was. Or God has changed in his goodness toward me for some reason. And that's why I'm suffering. They're believing that God is not good. And so our verse begins, our text begins in verse 16 with James giving a prohibition, a negative command. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Now this verse functions as a bridge between verse 15 and verses 17 and 18. Uh, verse 16 looks back on James's discussion of how God doesn't tempt anyone to sin, while also looking forward to James's discussion on the unchanging goodness of God. Right? It's a bridge. God, don't be deceived. He is not tempting you to sin. He is good. Right? But before we get into the negative command, I, I want you to notice how gentle and pastoral James is being with these hurting, hurting people. What's he say? My beloved brothers. My beloved brothers. And, and sisters right here. The, the Greek word here, uh, depending on the context, can mean just brothers or brothers and sisters. And in this context, it's, it's both. So he says, my beloved brothers and sisters. He loves them. James loves them, and he wants them to know that. right? He uses phrases like this all over the letter, by the way. My brothers, my beloved brothers. He has genuine affection for these hurting Christians. In James's mind, he reasons this way. God loves them. James probably hadn't met most of these people, by the way. But James is thinking God loves them. Christ came and died for them. They are the people of God. They're believers, and so I love them as well. And because James has a real affection for them, note this, please, we need to hear this, especially Reformed people. Because James loves them, he doesn't go in guns blazing. Right? You ever done that? I've done that. Right? He loves them, so he doesn't go in with shotgun blasts. He's going to address their error, but he wants them to know first that he loves them. A quick note here, brothers and sisters, we must remember to do the same. Please hear me. When we see a brother or sister in the Lord's suffering and, and, and beginning to go astray in their thinking about God, we must be gentle with them. We must be gentle with them. We must make it clear to them that we really, truly care about them. Even as we confront them in their sin and sinful thinking, it must be known very clearly that we're doing so because they are our beloved brothers. Right, so please, know this. When you go to correct someone, bear in mind their suffering. Please. Please keep in mind their pain. Show compassion to them. Don't go into the situation as a theological hound. Right, You're going to give them a 45-minute lecture on the sovereignty of God whenever they just told you that they lost their child. Please don't do that. And don't go in barging in as the sin police because you heard them question aloud whether or not God is good because they found out their mother just passed away. Please don't go kicking in the door whenever that happens. You go to them with love and gentleness. 
You regard them as one you love because you do love them. Remember, James, don't misunderstand me. James is not going to let them get away with this kind of thinking. He's not, right? In fact, James writes a very bluntly worded letter. It's one of the most blunt letters in the entire New Testament next to Galatians. He's, he's incredibly to the point. He's even somewhat harsh at times in his phrasing. But James makes it very clear all over this letter that he really does love the people that he is trying to correct. He wants them to know that he loves them and that he's doing good for them. But James says here, do not be deceived. And the verb tense that this is in effectively means stop being deceived and continue to resist deception. Stop being deceived right now and keep not being deceived. Right? That's what this means. So these suffering Christians, again, to belabor the point a bit, the suffering Christians were currently being deceived, and James says they must stop it. They must recognize that they have bought into a lie that says God is not good. They need to recognize the lie, and they must resist it with everything that they have. And this is really helpful to us as we suffer. Right, think about it. Once the heat gets turned up and the pain starts to come, one of the first things that fallen human beings like ourselves are prone to think is that God is not good. I guarantee it. Maybe it doesn't come out of your mouth, but it manifests itself in some way. I knew this would happen. Well, how did you know that this bad thing would happen? That's a small implication that you don't believe God is good. I knew God was going to do this to me. That's what you're saying. You're not believing that God's good. It's one of the first things that we're prone to think. But brothers and sisters, this is a lie from Satan. This is actually, I would argue, the original lie that Satan told our first parents in the garden. Remember, God doesn't want you to eat that fruit because it will make you like him. He's withholding a good thing from you, and that must mean he's not good. The idea that God is not good is the oldest lie of the devil. So when you begin to wonder whether or not God is good as you suffer, I want you to hear the hiss of the serpent in your ear. He's lying to you. Be not deceived. God's not trying to harm you by allowing trials to come upon you. He intends you to grow. What's James say in verse 3? For you, count, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when various trials come upon you. For you know, verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's what God is doing through your trials. He's growing your faith and he's purifying you. He's not trying to get you to sin. He's not trying to trick you into disobedience. He's not trying to destroy you by allowing hardships to come. Do not be deceived. God is not doing evil to you. God is not evil. But you will be tempted by the devil and your own sinfulness, I might add. You don't need the devil to sin, right? You're sinful enough all by yourself. But you will be tempted by the devil and your own sinfulness to believe that God is evil. But you must resist. Recognize it as a lie, as deception, and resist it. And quickly, before we move on, why, why is James concerned with this? Why does he say, do not be deceived? I think it's because he knows that wrong thinking about God will destroy your soul. It will destroy your soul. Or to put it another way, if you really buy the lie that God is not good, it's only a matter of time before you commit apostasy. 
It's only a matter of time before you abandon the faith entirely. And should you abandon Christ, you will perish. And James knows if you believe that God is evil, you will not be a Christian for long. Think about it for a moment. Who will serve a God from the heart with gratitude and sincere affection? Who will serve a God who is evil and does evil things to hurt his worshipers? Nobody. Or at least not for very long. This kind of error in your thinking, that God, if you think God is evil, that kind of error is going to shipwreck your souls because it puts you on a path that leads to hell. And so you must resist the temptation to believe that God is not good. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. But instead of buying into that lie, James tells us what we're to think on instead. Right? He tells us what we should remember and meditate on about God. So brothers and sisters, hear me. Here, and there's many things we're going to look at, but here is the defense that you have against the lie that God is not good. Verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Let's take a, a first look at this first half of this verse. I want to look at it in the most simple, surface-level way that we can before we dig a little bit deeper into it. At the minimum... I believe James is saying more than this. But at the minimum, James is telling us that everything we have ever received that is good has come from above, that is from heaven, from the hand of God, who is the Father of lights. Everything good you've ever had. And the logic, then, in James' mind is this. If every good thing we have has come from God, then God must be good. The giver of good gifts himself must be good. And that is why he has given us every good thing that we have. Because he's good. Or let's summarize it this way. If it is good, it has come from God. If it is good, it has come from God because God is good. What a remedy for a heart broken by suffering. This is a remedy for you. The fact that every good thing we have has come down from our God is one of the best things that we can remember when we suffer. And that's because it reminds us of God's amazing goodness and kindness towards us. So Christian, as you endure various trials and are tempted to believe the lie that God is not good, I want you to do something. Count your blessings. Right? And I know that that's going to sound very cliche and unhelpful to some of you, right? Like everyone's grandma, if she was a Christian, had something on the wall that says count your blessings. She probably like stitched it into one of them things that old people do. I don't know. Some of you ladies do it. I'm sorry. You act kind of old. Uh, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> some of you may think that's a little bit cliche, but I think that this is a simple and good application of what James is saying here. Count your blessings. Take a mental note of every good thing that you have. Because no matter how bad our lives are, I would argue there is something good in your life. And remember that it has come to you from God. Remember that God gave it to you as a gift. And I want to highlight that. It's a gift. Every good gift and every perfect gift has come, in from, God, has come from God. It's a gift. He's given it to you graciously. Can you merit anything from God? Can you put God into your debt? Can you force God's hand to give you anything good? No. That's blasphemy if you think you can twist God's arm into giving you something good. You can't. 
You cannot make God give you one single good thing. All you and I deserve is death and hell because we sin. We don't deserve a single good thing from God. But since God gives us so many good gifts in our lives, we ought to be convinced that He's good because He gives them to sinners. He gives good gifts to people who do not deserve them. So then we must recognize that He does so simply because He is good. It overflows out of Him. There is no other reason for God to give awful people like us good things other than He is good. So Christian, when you suffer, I want you to be quick to open your eyes and look around and see all the blessings that our good God has given to you. Let me name a few. You woke up this morning. God gave you life. Every breath you take is a good gift. The vast majority of us have a place to live. And even if you don't have your own home, you have some form of shelter. You are clothed. You have consistently eaten throughout your life, and I know that because you are not dead. In fact, uh, I was talking to Gary Chaffins about this. I'm real good friends with him. I love that guy, Pastor Gary. If you're 30 years old and you've eaten only two meals a day, God has given you 22,000 meals. We don't think about that, do we? Most of us drove here in a car or at least have access to a vehicle somehow to get where we need to go. You've, you've taken medicine when you were sick. <laughs> Consider that. What a blessing medicine is. Are you married? If so, you have companionship with your spouse. Do you have children? What a blessing it is to have children. Do you have a job? God providentially gave it to you. Do you have even one friend in this world? God has allowed you to have friendship. Consider, we have the ability to laugh and find some things humorous. God did not have to give us that capability. Imagine a world without humor. Right? I know some of you already live in one, like Keeley. Right? But sincerely, God did not have to give us a sense of humor. That little, that small bit of joy you just felt as you laughed at Mrs. Wallachek. As I have all kinds of joy at it every day. But that little bit of joy that you had in laughing at something, God didn't have to give you that, that capability. How your heart just kind of goes up when you find something funny. He didn't have to give that. That's a blessing. We have the ability to love and be loved by others. God could have made us isolated beings. You can see, you can taste, you can hear, you can walk, you can talk, you can feel, you have your mental faculties, and all of this comes from God. And we've not even begun to make a complete list of all the good things God has done for us. We've barely begun to scratch the surface of the earthly, temporal things God has done for us. We've not even begun to get into the spiritual blessings God's given us through Christ Jesus. We will here in a minute. We've not even begun so then, in light of all of that, even in the midst of our trials, it is abundantly clear that God is good. He's given us so many good things, and He's given them to us, sinners, who don't deserve them. And the only explanation for that is that God is good. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. God is good, and He demonstrates His goodness by giving you good things. 
If it is good, it has come from God as a gift. But let's dig a little bit deeper into these verses, or rather these gifts. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Notice that James says every, twice, every good gift and every perfect gift. That's all of them. Every single thing that God gives to his people is good. It's all-inclusive. Nothing is left out. Nothing that God gives his people is exempted from this. And notice the two gifts that James mentions. Now, we can't see it in our English Bibles, but James actually uses two different words for gift in the original. The first gift, every good gift, refers to the act of giving. That is, every good giving. The act of giving itself is good. The second gift means the gift given is perfect or it's complete. and It's good to do whatever God intends it to do. So not only is every gift given perfect, but the giving itself is good. That means that God's intention in giving is always good. He never gives you anything with a bad motive. So whatever he gives is intended for the good of his people. His motives are pure. His intentions are good. Brothers and sisters, this means that our God never gives the wrong thing. And he never gives it at the wrong time. And he never gives anything in the wrong way. His giving and whatever he gives to his people is always good. They're always good and always sufficient to accomplish the good things that he intends them to do. So with that said, I think that verse 17 actually ties back to verses 2 through 4. And in verses 2 through 4, we are confronted with the truth that even trials are one of God's perfect gifts because when we take them His way, seeking to honor, obey, and trust Him through the trial, His intention is to do good for us, to grow us and sanctify us. And if that sounds strange, I beg you to remember the overall context of this chapter. The context is trials and suffering. It's not just sunny days that are primarily in view. It's hard days that are in view. And James is reminding us that everything God gives us is good. He doesn't give a bad gift. So if it comes from the hand of God, it is intended somehow to be a blessing to us. And listen, our sanctification, the building up of our character, the strengthening of our faith, the increase of our prayer, all of these things are good gifts that come to us from God and are brought about through our trials. Brothers and sisters, I want you to consider that your trials are actually a blessing from God. Or you can say this, all trials contain a gift of some kind. Again, let me defend this thought, because I know this is really unpopular, right? Everything that happens to us comes to us at least indirectly from God. Everything that happens to us comes from God in one way or another. He is sovereign. Right? Don't lose your Calvinism now, folks. Right? He is sovereign. Not a thing can happen to us apart from his sovereign will and plan. Nothing happens to us or comes upon us apart from his divine providence. Every trial, then, is foreordained. Every hardship is predestined. 
Every ounce of suffering is part of his good will and plan for you. And since those things are coming upon you, that means that the sovereign God has orchestrated things so that they would happen this way. And he is good. So then, whatever befalls you comes ultimately from his good hand and ought to be embraced as a gift of some kind because it is intended for your good. I mean, this is really just James's version of Romans 8, 28, isn't it? Right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is James's Romans 8, 28. Brothers and sisters, even your trials are a gift of sorts. And I want to be clear, not the suffering itself. That's no gift. Not the hardship itself, not the pain as mere pain. But what God is doing through them is the gift. Should you cling tightly to him and cry out to him for help, asking for wisdom, verse 5, that's the gift. What God is doing through your suffering, that's the gift. God has only good intended for you even in your trials. Why? Because he is good and he only does good. So to summarize all of this that we've seen so far, and we still got some more to do, but to summarize everything we've seen so far, we can say two things with confidence. One, if it is good, it comes from God. And two, if it comes from God, it is good. Please hear me. If you don't get this deep down into your heart, you won't know how to suffer when the day comes. This is one of those simple truths that you're going to come back to time and time again. If it's good, it's come from God. And if it's come from God to me, it is good. You have to hold on to that or you will be deceived into believing that God is evil. You must hold it. You must hold it. You must believe he is good. So James has shown us all that that all God does is good and that everything God gives is good. And now James goes on to tell us that God is unchangeably good. Let me read verse 17 again. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James here refers to God as the Father of lights. The Father of lights. Not just a Jewish way of recognizing that God is the creator of the universe. Right? The lights here refer to the sun, moon, and stars. Right? And these in, in themselves are good gifts from God, just real quick. Um, in fact, all that God created in Genesis 1, he said, and it was good. Everything he made was good. But God has given us the sun to light our days. The sun that from God's hand gives light and life to all the world. Without the sun, we don't have life. And he's given us the moon to light our nights, and he's given us the stars to mark time and seasons and help us to navigate the world. These are all good gifts given to us from God. But I think that James really intends to make a play here. It's a play on concepts. The lights, God is the father of lights. The lights that God made change all the time, don't they? At least from our perspective. I assume that no one here is a flat earther. Um, right? So from our perspective, the lights change. Each day the sun rises, 
moves across the sky throughout the day, and then it sets. It moves, and it shifts, and it changes. And the moon changes all the time. Each night, it's either waxing or waning. It's constantly shifting with shadow. And the stars all throughout the year, the stars are moving about in the heavens. And that's not to mention that stars die, and the sun and the moon can be eclipsed at times. The lights change. Everyone knows that. But with God, the Father of the lights, there is no variation or shadow due to change. That's James' play here. The lights change. God doesn't. Period. God is immutable. Pastor Stephen's going to preach on that in a few weeks, on the immutability of God. There's your word for the day. That just means he doesn't change. Right? It sounds smart to everyone you talk to. Do you know God's immutable? Right? God doesn't change. He is who he is, and he will never deviate from it an inch. As God says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God doesn't change at all. Consider with me. For God to change means that he either changed for the better, which means he was not perfect to begin with, or he changes for the worse, and that means he is no longer perfect. And if he's not perfect, he's not God. But God never changes. God is perfection itself. And he tells us with his own holy mouth that he does not change because his nature cannot change because he is perfect. There is no variation or shadow due to change with him. For our text this evening, this means that God is always good. James says God is good and he is unchangeably good. He doesn't do good to his people sometimes, but then other times decides to be evil to them. Far from it. Again, he cannot do any other than good. It would go against his nature to do evil and he will not violate himself. He is good. Know that for a fact. His goodness does not change. And Christian, that means his goodness and love toward you does not change, ever, ever. He has brought you into his family through the person and work of Christ. He has cleansed you by the blood of the Lord Jesus and made you his own. He has covenanted himself to do good to you forever, and that will not change. It cannot change. No matter what you go through. No matter what trial you are put through, no matter how great the pain is, I want you to settle it in your heart that God is unchanging and unwavering in his goodness towards you because that is a fact. We change. We change every day. We are in a constant state of becoming. But God does not change. And therein lies our hope and comfort through trials and hardships. God is unchangeably good. And now we come to our final verse. And here, James gives us the supreme example of God's goodness and good giving to his people. So Christian, when you are suffering trials and temptations, when life is hard and you begin to question the goodness of God, you look here and resolve it forever in your heart that God is good. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. The supreme goodness of God is displayed in the new birth that we have received by grace. 
of his own will, says James. That is, because of his good will toward us. Because of his goodness and kindness toward us that we could never have merited. Because he is good, he did something for us. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That is literally, he gave birth to us. Christian, spiritually speaking, God gave birth to you. This is the new birth. This is what Jesus talked about in John 3 with Nicodemus. This is what the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2. Being made alive together with Christ. Because of God's goodness toward us, He gave us spiritual life. By pure grace, God caused us to be born again. He took spiritually dead sinners and by a pure miracle breathed life into our dead lungs, took out our hearts of stone, gave us hearts that beat for Him. And where there was no faith, He gave us the gift of faith so that we could savingly believe upon Christ. God made us alive together with Christ Jesus. And how did He do this? How did He do it? By the word of truth. Catch this, please. By the word of truth. That is, God orchestrated all the events of our lives so that we would hear the word of God proclaimed. He orchestrated your life so that you would hear the word of truth. Whether it was through formal preaching, street preaching, private evangelism, a song declaring the gospel, a track, the radio, a video, whatever it was, God directed your life, Christian, he directed your life so that you would hear His Word proclaimed. And then through the means of that preached Word, God caused us to be made alive. And by the faith He placed into our hearts, we believed upon Christ and were saved. I'm walking away from my notes here for a second. But I want you to see, again with this, by the word of truth, God used means, which means he sovereignly had to make your life go a certain way so that you would hear the word. This same sovereign providence of God that is bringing trials upon you is the same sovereign providence of God that caused you to hear the word of truth that you might be born again. Remember that. But notice this, we are the passive all throughout this verse. We did not bring ourselves forth. Of his own will, he brought us forth. God is the active here. He did the work. He did it all. Right? I'm sure you guys have heard this before. You did not cause yourself to be born the first time. You were very, very much passive in that. It was as a result of your mother and your father that you were brought forth. And in the same way, we didn't cause ourselves to be born the second time. Our God and Father did it by the work of His Spirit. We could not have given ourselves lives, life. We could not have chosen to believe upon Christ ourselves. We could not have made ourselves alive in any way. But God, of His own will, brought us forth by the word of truth. God gave us a good and perfect gift and we merely received goodness from his holy hands. What a good gift from a good God that he would cause us to be born again. And why did he do this? The second half of verse 18. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What does that mean? In the Old Testament, the first fruits of every crop and the firstborn of everything that breathed belonged to God. It belonged to God, the first fruits. They were his special possession. 
The first fruits belong to him in a special way. And here James tells us that God caused us to be born again so that we would be his. So that we would belong to him. Don't lose that. I know many of you, you're, you're, you, you understand this, right? You've been studying Reformed theology for a few years now, maybe longer. Don't lose the beauty of this. He caused you to be born again so that you would belong to Him. So that you would be His special possession set apart from the rest of the world as His. He did all of this. Why? Because He wanted us. Of His own will. Because He wanted us. But why? Why would God want a bunch of fallen, wicked sinners as his own special possession? There's only one answer. Because he is good. Because he is good. Now, Christian, do you honestly think that God would give you this best gift, that he would be so good to you, that he would love you this much to then turn around and do evil to you? Perish the thought. That's crazy talk. Perish the thought. When you're in the midst of a trial, and when all around you is darkness and pain, you rem- and you begin to question whether or not God is good, you remember this. God caused you to be born again so that you would belong to Him. And settle it forever that He is good. Let me close now by saying two brief things. The first, for the 57th time, God is good. God is good. I hope I've made that much clear to you this evening. He's good. And that then means that you can trust and rely upon him through your trials. You can trust him. He intends to do you good. So trust him and seek to be faithful to this good God even as you suffer. He will help you. He does not intend to destroy you. Rather, He intends to bless you in some way. He will help you and bless you by the end, some way, somehow. And I don't know how, so don't ask me. If I knew, I'd be gone. I don't know how. Maybe I can take a crack at it, right? If you tell me your situation, maybe I can see. But sometimes things happen to us, and they're just horrible Two children burning alive in a house fire. How is God going to bless the parents and grandparents through that? I don't know. But this I know, that God is good. And he's going to do good to his people through every trial. He is good. I may not know how, but I know who he is. And you know who he is too now. Trust him. Second, worship this good God. Worship Him. Consider all He has done, all He is doing, and all He will do for you. Consider that it is all by grace alone because of His pure goodness. Count your blessings. Reflect on your salvation. Reflect on His goodness and kindness towards you and give thanks to Him. Every day, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen.
Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this most illuminating portion of Scripture that reminds us of who you are and all the good you've done for us. And Lord, I know that there are many here suffering, some more than others, but God, I pray that by your Spirit, you would set this truth home to their hearts, that they would be convinced above all else that you are good and you are worthy of of their trust, you are worthy of their affection, you are worthy of their praise. God, have mercy on us and help us to remember so that we're not deceived by the evil one. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand if you are able? Before we sing, we're going to read from Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. say this isn't a performance right this is good good for you all in some way I'm not sure how you're laughing so that's good right yeah (laughs) this yes this is true I forget how the melody the first line works I'm sorry it's completely out of my head we'll just go with it I'll get it I'll be right Take from your hand your blessing.
Right. 